Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hi, everybody. This is Aaron Kramer, the president and CEO of BSR. We are a global business network and consultancy, more than 300 companies whom we support uh, on all aspects of just and sustainable business. And I'm going to kick us off today. Thank you very much for joining us. This is the second episode in our conversation series with Morrison Forster, ESG Influencers Leading Transformative Change. And for today's session, as mentioned, the second one we've done, we are very honored to have Tim Moen with us. Tim is a true legend in the field of ESG and sustainability. I have worked with Tim over many years. Tim is a global sustainability leader, a keynote speaker, and an author. Tim has really covered the waterfront in terms of the platforms from which he has impacted sustainable business. He served as the CEO of the Global Reporting Initiative, the GRI. He's also held sustainability leadership roles in companies from Intel to Apple to AMD, and he has government experience as well, having worked on environmental policy in the U.S. Senate and at the U.S. EPA. Tim is the author of Changing Business from the Inside Out and a founder and former chairman of the Responsible Business Alliance, which was launched into the world as the Electronic Industry Citizenship Coalition, launched with BSR, I might add. For today's discussion, and we are delighted to have Tim with us, we will talk about the coming obligations for ESG, a term that is getting a lot of attention, some of it welcome, some of it perhaps less so, specifically on ESG disclosures, particularly on climate, and how companies can prepare for a changing landscape. Because as companies and investors consider how to measure, benchmark, and report on their ESG initiatives and impacts on a global scale, having the correct data, correct structures, management systems, governance in place, these things are more crucial than ever. So Tim will provide some insights from his experience leading sustainability strategies for some of the largest tech companies in the world and offer perspectives on future challenges. Suze McCormick, who is the global chair of the ESG Social Enterprise and Impact Investing and Energy Practices at MoFo. Yes, Suze wears many hats very well, including serving on the BSR board. Suze will be interviewing Tim for this episode. So with that, Suze and Tim, take it away. Thanks so much, Aaron and Tim. I can't believe I've known you for almost 20 years, and it is just a pleasure to have you with us today. I can't think of anybody better to really drill down a little bit with some practical advice on climate. You know, ESG, we, we talked about with Aaron in our first session, is incredibly broad. And so one of the things we're going to do with these this video series is really break it down and talk about some of the specific elements, including human rights, including cyber. But today we're going to focus on climate. And I'd like to start with some scene setting from you, taking a step back. Where are we right now with climate and particularly climate disclosure? We're, I know we're in a very different place now than we were five years ago, 10 years ago, but take us through where we are and maybe start with some preliminary advice as companies are seeing regulation coming, but also pressure from investors, from consumers, from employees. 
Well, first of all, thank you, Suze. It's fabulous to be with you today. And you're right, we go back decades. And it, it goes to the answer to your question. In all of the years that I've worked in this space, I've never seen it as dynamic as it is right now. And the reasons for that, I think, are really the foundations for this webinar. Sustainability disclosure has been around a very long time. You mentioned, or Aaron mentioned, that I led the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, for a few years. And the GRI was and is still the largest sustainability disclosure standard that is used by companies for voluntary sustainability disclosure. And when you really look at that, GRI has been around since, my goodness, um, probably early 90s. It split off from series in 97. And that's a very long time, I think 25 years now of independent standard setting at GRI. And now most companies, I think it's 92% of the S&P 500 actually voluntarily disclose some sustainability information. And so you could say, okay, so what's new? What's new is that this information is actually crossing the threshold from the voluntary disclosure space into the mandatory disclosure space. What does that mean? It means that some of the disclosures, not all, will be integrated into financial statements. And that changes everything because all of a sudden you have to have audited, assured, and integrated disclosures in your financial statements at the filing deadline. And the deadline is actually quite significant as a challenge to companies. And it's not all of the disclosures. And so I get the question all the time, what happens to voluntary sustainability reporting? I think we are heading into, at least in the transitional period, a two-tier system where many companies will still have voluntary disclosures because they have quite a bit of the reputation staked on their sustainability platform. But the new is that some of the information and climate is at the top of the list, will cross that threshold into the mandatory financial statements. We're seeing that with the SEC proposed rule in this country. We're seeing it with other mandates that are coming out of Europe in particular, but also Asia. And along with those mandates, we're seeing new standards that will professionalize this entire area so that it is ready for those kinds of disclosures. So to put it a different way, it used to be, yes, some companies, obviously there was regulation and the energy sector, for example, about what they disclose, but in most other industries, people were already voluntarily disclosing. Now there is going to be a lot more consistency and you have the regulators that are requiring disclosure. And obviously different countries, different jurisdictions are further along. The U.S. with the SEC is coming and we'll come to that. So to start off, you're looking at this world of climate disclosure. You've been doing some, but not a lot as a company. What? Tell me your top three sort of recommendations for how a company that maybe is not as far along as an Apple or a Chevron, how they should start thinking about climate disclosure. That's a great question. When you look at this area, especially if you're not as mature as some of the name brand leaders you mentioned, the right place to start is really with governance. Most people want to start with the data. The data is absolutely essential, but it's hard, especially mm -hmm. as many of the mandates that are out there get into this area of scope three, which is really your value chain, both upstream and downstream of your company, which is incredibly difficult to gather that information. Before starting on that, or simultaneously with starting on that really difficult job of gathering all of that data, 
it's really essential that the governance of the company from the board directors to the C-suite have the structures, systems, and processes in place to receive that information, to interpret it, and to set reasonable goals for the company and then have a feedback loop for how is the company doing against those goals. And I'll add to that, this goes back to the first question you asked. It's different than the current form of disclosure in that when you're disclosing things in your financial statements, first of all, there's a quality commitment. These disclosures have to be audited and assured, which I think in the voluntary markets, less than half are doing that. So that's number one. Number two is you have to start looking at it from the position of risk, specifically financial risks to the company. That can be physical risk, adaptation risks over time, transition risks. All of these risk models need to be incorporated into that information. And so starting off with a governance model that has people that are educated in this space, moving to the business systems and processes, and then going to what data do we have and what is audited and insured and reliable data. That's how I would start. And would you agree that at least initially when you're starting out, less is more? In other words, you can get in trouble for greenwashing or you'll actually get more in trouble for saying things that you can't support with good data now than not saying and saying, you know, setting a goal and saying we're working on it when we're, it's coming. Is that, would you agree with that? That's 100% right. In fact, a mutual friend of Aaron and yours is Joel McCower. And Joel does a piece every Monday. This Monday, today, he had 12 messages to greenwashers. And he didn't pull any punches as only Joel can do. And so it's quite clear that many companies and financial institutions have jumped on the bandwagon of setting fairly ambitious goals with regard to climate change. This is not a good thing. We want to see companies taking steps like this. However, goals without plans are greenwash, and that needs to be called out, and it will be called out. I've called it the accountability crisis, because there's more than a third of the S&P 500 that have now set some form of net zero carbon commitment. And many of those, and I don't have the actual numbers, don't really have demonstrable plans behind them to meet those goals. And so as time clicks off, I think you're going to see a lot of scrutiny on those goals and those companies will be held to account. And then I've also noticed that the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance, great intentionality getting there for investors and all their portfolio companies, in addition to companies, is a high hurdle. And maybe just comment on net zero means you don't just offset all of your emissions by buying credits. You really, going back to your top three, you have a government structure that addresses it. Number two is really looking at the business systems and operations, right? That's exactly right. And when it comes to financial institutions, since you mentioned that, they're especially challenged because frankly, you have been late to the party, let's say. Many of the large branded enterprises have been at this for some time. And you mentioned earlier some names and brand names that, that have really invested a lot in those systems and processes. When it comes to financial institutions, their carbon impact of their actual operations is tiny. CDP did a study to, to show that their, quote, scope one and scope two, their actual carbon emissions of their own operations was on average 700 times less than the carbon impact of their 
financial transactions, the financed emissions. And so a lot of them are playing catch up, trying to figure out what are their financed emissions, how do they calculate them, how do they report them, and most importantly, what do they do about them? That's a really good point. And let me just mention to the audience, we have a good group on. If you have questions, please put them in the Q&A. Starting in about 10 minutes or so, I'd be happy to take them and actually make sure that Tim answers them because he is our expert. I wanted to go back on something that you said a couple minutes ago about climate risk, because I think people focus on emissions and, as you just said, financial institutions or even law firms like MOFO, our actual emissions are very low. And it's two sides of the same coin, your emissions needing to reduce your emissions, making those commitments, but really evaluation of climate risk. If you're an energy company, it's you've got your stranded assets, but any other company really looking through their operations. Can you un unpack that a little bit for us? Absolutely. Risk management is a fairly well-established field, especially within the financial sector. It's less established when it comes to sustainability. Fun fact, I actually started my career in risk assessment. That was my first job at EPA was to assess the risk of toxic air pollutants. So there's a whole body of knowledge of risk assessment. And what's interesting is that as this change that we're discussing takes root and you're seeing climate cross the threshold into the mainstream of global commerce, you're seeing these professions step up and saying, how do we take on this new challenge? And one of the professions is the Global Association of Risk Professionals. I love their acronym. It's better than MOFO. It's GARP. But GARP has an entire certification class now for risk management professionals on sustainability and climate risk that you can get accredited in. So you're starting to see everything from risk management professionals to accountants to assurance providers put in the basic fundamental building blocks of how do we take on this change, which is climate is entering this mainstream. How do we apply our skills to that? And I think some of this fundamental education needs to take place as we start to put these mechanisms in place. I agree. And as I explained to people, there's the need to reduce emissions, but then it's just good business to, especially the physical threats, which are now, when you and I started, were, not, were evident to some people, but possibly not others. You know, if you're looking at, if you're signing on to 20-year contracts, you know, understanding the viability of your supplier in that 20-year contract and not just floods and fires, but also loss of arable land and their ability to perform. And it actually leads me to a question that we covered some with Aaron last time, but I'd like to just cover with you as well, which is the anti-ESG sort of backlash. And some of it is single versus double materiality. What is your responsibility as a company to look at ESG, the parts of ESG that are really material to operations versus hearing all of the impact of the company on third parties. And I think regulation in the EU obviously covers both. In the US, we tend to be more single materiality, but on climate, especially climate risk, is purely single material. I mean, you know, evaluating risk is key. It's back to your second point. It is key to systems and operations. So maybe you could comment a little bit about the role of climate within this ESG debate. Yeah, it's one of the things, having been in this field now for my entire career, that actually troubles me the most, is that over those decades, the issue of, now we call it ESG, 
but let's just call it what it is. In this case, we're talking about mainly climate risk disclosure or the entire life cycle of dealing with climate change has become a political football. And that's super troubling because when I worked in the Senate, one of the reasons I left the Senate is I'm a policy wonk, pure and simple. I like policy. But when politics sort of trumps policy, then you get into weird stuff. And that's what's happening right now with climate change disclosure in many state laws. There are 17 states that are dealing with either laws or bills that are, quote, crusading against corporate woke policies. It's not limited just to climate. In fact, it touches on many different aspects of ESG, such as diversity in some cases. But the climate one is the most serious in that there are some laws and certainly legislative proposals to limit state business with financial institutions and companies that espouse climate policy to reduce their greenhouse gas footprint because those states feel that, especially oil and gas producing states, feel that is a threat to them. And you can understand that basic logic, but in essence, they're tying the hands of these asset managers and asset owners who are looking at the broader energy transition and the known risks associated with climate change and saying, well, you can't consider those. Well, if they can't consider those, then you're looking at much higher borrowing costs. You're looking at all sorts of different economic impacts on those very states. It was interesting, just yesterday, an article came out in the Financial Times with Sarah Bloom Raskin, who was the nominee for the Federal Reserve vice chair, who was testifying about this issue and saying that the costs to states like Texas and others are going to be debilitating to those states. And so it'll be interesting. This, this is one where I say, get the popcorn and the box of Kleenex, because it's going to be fun to watch and a bit sad as these forces go at it. Yeah. And holding us back in terms of what we need to do. I do find on the more conservative side, if you talk in the language of you know, single materiality and explain, you know, this, this is not about saving the world necessarily, although we need to do that for business as well, but this is about what is necessary for the business to make sure that it has a viable supply chain. It has it can service its customers. It can continue to manufacture around the world. Then you kind of have a different conversation. We do have a question that has come in. I'm going to get to, I want to drill down on business processes and, a, and systems in a second, but let's go back to your three suggestions, starting with governance. And you started with governance. I also start with governance. I know Aaron <laughs> starts with governance as well. And the question is whether you have specific suggestions for how to get executive buy-in to make this a priority so that companies can move forward more expeditiously. Yeah, I think it starts with people having served in three different companies, all different cultures of those three companies. And especially among the executive ranks, I'll use a specific example. My last corporate job was with AMD went through four different CEO transitions while I was there seven years. And during each transition, you had a, a new CEO and executive team come in. And I took it upon myself to sit down with each of the executive team and walk through the history, the current challenges and the possible future directions for our corporate responsibility slash sustainability programs. And it's amazing what you learn when you shut up and let people talk. These are business leaders. These people have not studied sustainability. They're not like me who spent their whole career on this space. But when you 
actually start to get into the issues, you find that I think really, I find it rewarding. Many of these people care deeply about these issues and want to see their legacy as leaders in a company reflective of sustainability progress. And with that experience, we developed, I'll go to another example at Intel, it was early on, a more negative example where shareholder proxies were coming in fairly regularly. And we felt at that time, it was incumbent upon us to have a structure at the board level, which was a committee. At first, I think it was delegated to a standing committee, and then it became a freestanding committee to deal with sustainability issues at the company. So there's lots of different ways to approach it, but the common element is to sit down with the people in power, the folks who are on the board in the C-suite, kind of walk through, and I worked with BSR quite a bit on this, actually, the basics of a materiality assessment, looking at what's going on in the world around the company, what's going on within the company, and how those two things intersect. And once you go through that process, you've not only learned a lot, but you gain a cadre of people who are interested in this and willing to learn more and set up structures and devote their time to the issue. Yeah, I agree. I agree with all of that, obviously. And I think it is, from what I have seen, my vantage point over the last 20, 25 years, if you have a strong CSO who is given a seat at the table with senior management, is not answering to the head of marketing or the assistant general counsel, that is helpful in communicating and helping the communication, the direct tie-in with the C-suite. I also, it's not just because I'm a board member, entities like BSR can be incredibly valuable partners to help tell the story. So it's not just the CSO, it is somebody like BSR that works with most of the Fortune 500 who can tell people and really explain it, what is happening in the market, what is happening in terms of consumer demands, and then you know helping to assess the risk and to convince people that this is necessary. Can, can I read to that just for a minute before the next question, if I could? Yeah. So in the intro, you guys mentioned my book. The book's 10 years old now, so it needs to be rewritten. And it needs to be rewritten because of what you just said. So I wrote a book called Changing Business from the Inside Out, which is basically a manual for how to work inside a company on sustainability and corporate responsibility. And if there's one lesson from the book, it's you have to lead through influence, which is a good lesson almost in any career. But it's especially good when you don't have much power within the company and yet you have a lot of responsibility. That's changing because of what you said, Suze. I do believe that the role of CSO, which wasn't a thing 10 years ago, is now much more of a thing across corporate America, corporate international. And those positions are actually being given significant authority within companies. That creates a whole series of career challenges because folks from sustainability backgrounds like myself don't necessarily bring those full business suite of skills with them. And that, I think, is the future, though, of where this whole field is going. Yeah, I agree. And I've been interested that there are a number of companies like Nestle, for example, where the CSO and the GC are the same. My practice point is I think you, you do your company a great disservice if you only look at ESG and climate from a compliance lens, because as we've just talked about, this field existed for 20 years, you know, business and industry and investors and consumers are, you know, already in college, the disclosure requirements and compliance and regulation 
in a lot of places is still back in preschool or elementary school. And so if you want to keep up with your competitors, if you want to really be able to assess the risk with your business, if you want to be prepared for what is coming, just viewing it from a compliance perspective, I think does everybody a disservice, but that's my... So I'm fine with this CSO GC linkage and they need to work very closely together, but it is much broader than just compliance, which brings me to what I want to focus on for a couple minutes. And again, if you have questions, please feel free to put them in the chat and we will ask them. Let's go back to the business systems that you referenced. And I'd like you to provide a little more detail on how people are focusing. You know, what are some real world examples about how to do it well? Because you are really integrating it into your operations, your day-to-day company functioning. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I mentioned materiality assessment earlier, something we did with BSR, but if we just assume that we've gone through that process and we've selected climate change and climate change is on the top of everybody's list, then the question is, how do we deal with our greenhouse gas footprint? What are the ways that a company would not just assess that, but manage that? And it starts from, I think, a a bottoms-up review of that footprint. So many companies, as we discussed earlier, have done sort of the tops down you know, this is an issue. Our competitors are ahead of us with goal setting. Let's just set a goal. My sense is that the wise companies take their time and they look through their entire assessment across the value chain, figure out where the opportunities and the risks are, and from that develop a strategy. So any good business system starts with an overall objective. And if that objective is built on facts and data, about not only the company's retrospective carbon impacts, but where the company is going in the future, then you're on solid ground. Uh, Then you have something to base your objective or your goal upon. And then any good objective is followed up by the basics of having the right people and the right processes and the right feedback loops associated with it. So you have to have the, the people that have authority for actually mitigating the impacts Sometimes that might be the supply chain leader, for example, and some of these folks are not going to be as educated on this topic, nor maybe as motivated. So you have to do that sort of basic human resources, look across where, you know, who are the most important people? How do I get them fully capable and in place? Then you need to have the actual, this is the regular business process that we all go through, the cross-functional quarterly meeting where everybody's going through how they did, what are the barriers, what needs to change. Because if you don't have that, goals tend to get forgotten after the press releases out and the accolades are done. If you don't have those regular quarterly or monthly meetings where each leader responsible for an aspect of the objective is on point to discuss their progress, then it's all going to fall apart. So getting those things we already know how to do in companies applied to the climate problem so very important. I agree. One interesting fact, we worked with corporate counsel and interviewed about 500 in-house counsel, a bunch of questions about ESG and and in-house counsel's role in ESG within their organizations and particularly climate. 80% of in-house counsel said they were starting to tie compensation to certain ESG goals. It begged the question for me how objective they were and where, what kind of targets they were using, because doing it is very difficult. I remember a project with BSR and Nike more than 10 years ago. I mean, there are many companies like Nike that have 
worked on it, it's very hard, perfected, and have a lot of lessons, lessons to share. But what are your thoughts on how compensation can be a valid tool? And this takes me to sort of the governance point where, well, I'll get to it, but having it part of the purview of the comps committee, as you mentioned, it's included in the financials. So it's part of the audit committee and then it's part of the scaffolding. So it's part of the governance committee is actually key to having an effective policy around and practice around climate. I think writ large, it's an incredibly effective tool. And it's one of the things that you look for in a company that's serious about managing ESG. And so it's very important, but I've seen it done well and I've seen it done poorly. And this is actually, it goes beyond climate and ESG. When I've seen executive comp, specifically, it tends to be a bonus formula associated with various attributes. There are those that you feel like you had an impact on and those that you got lucky or unlucky on. And year after year, that formula had both within it when I was within companies that did that. So I think in order to make ESG tied to compensation, you have to actually tie it to the executive's purview. What is it that they can do? What do they have responsibility for? And more importantly, authority to manage and then associate it. And it's more work to do this, but associate the compensation with success on those items. And it breaks down differently. We used, uh, I used the supply chain manager in a previous comment. Turns out that scope three emissions in the supply chain tend to be one of the largest parts of a corporate carbon footprint. So how does a sustainability metric get tied to that supply leader's compensation? Well, it's going to be all about things like doing a risk assessment of the supply chain. Did you open their contracts? Did you actually see the emissions and manage those emissions? You know, those kinds of details are incredibly important. Otherwise, it's a kind of a tick the box and I got lucky or unlucky this year. Let's actually talk about the supply chain. And then I'm going to pull in a question that's from the audience again. You know, one of the things that we've noticed is companies are looking at climate different from anti-money laundering, anti-bribery, different from human rights and DEI, different from privacy and cyber. And in fact, all of those require people to go down into their supply chain. And so what we're finding, in fact, is these poor small suppliers out there have three sets of people who are asking different questions, you know, and of course, then I'm going to get to data after this question, you know, sort of the data. What is your advice from a company about how they link these sort of disparate parts of ESG all related to the supply chain in a way that makes sense. And, and you probably have different people internally as well as externally that, that are managing it. What's your advice in terms of how people can pull those threads together? And then the second part of the question is really taking one of those threads that runs alongside climate and privacy. How are people are incorporating privacy into the framework and reporting? That's a great question. And it takes me back a little bit. I, I don't know if this was clear in the bio, but when I worked at Apple, I was the founding employee of their supplier responsibility program, which let's just say was a huge challenge. You know, a massive supply chain, all in Asia, all sorts of ESG issues across the board. My job was to fix that. Uh, where do you start? And I gave a talk a, a few months ago at the Institute for Supply Management, where I had to kind of go through this. And I recall some of the things I learned in the supply chain world, which was that there are three rules that govern supply chain, cost, quality, and timely delivery. Uh, you can only optimize on two. And I remember an executive said at the time, 
I don't want much. I just want my goods instant, perfect, and free. And if you can do that, we're good. So that's the pressures that that go between buyer and supplier. And then you got a guy like me coming in and saying, okay, but we need to worry about workforce conditions and climate change and safety, et cetera. And honestly, there wasn't much room for that. So I had to take a step back and say, how could I be effective here? Because the power of the purse, which clearly Apple had, goes only so far. You really need to help the other side of the transaction, the supplier, to really understand and be capable to manage these issues within their operations. And so some of the things were to use the existing business practices, things like quarterly business reviews, which most companies operate to manage their large suppliers. We did a sort of 80-20 analysis to understand where the biggest risks were. And then we added information into those quarterly business reviews. And the other thing that I really go on a rant about is to keep it really simple that KPIs are key performance indicators. They're not everything you can measure. There are things that you can measure that show the overall functioning of the whole system and get those things in there and start looking at them quarterly, track trends. And then when you're getting even more mature, you go from tracking trends to doing comparisons between one supplier and another. And that last little bit, I've never seen anything drive performance faster than comparing one supplier to another on things that are in the ESG space. But some of these sort of basic lessons learned are still very relevant when it comes to supply chain. And I think that those things can be applied and should be applied as we get into this new world of mandatory climate disclosure. Your other question was on privacy, right? Yeah. But the specific question from Tina is, how are you seeing companies incorporate privacy within the ESG framework and reporting? Yeah, I think privacy is one of the biggest issues when you come to, for example, tech companies, because they're dealing with so much uh, data around their customers. When it comes to dealing with suppliers, you also have a fairly significant privacy issue. When we founded and ran the organization Aaron mentioned, the Responsible Business Alliance, we spent a great deal of time to set up the data system so that there was anonymity And there had to be sort of a agreement between buyer and supplier before the information could be unlocked. Otherwise, you have a privacy violation, essentially. Much of this information can be quite sensitive. It can reveal compliance issues. And as you know, Sue's compliance issues carry liability, but known compliance issues carry a lot more liability. And so it's quite important that the information is protected in the data systems that are operated and especially when it comes to collaborative data systems, like I mentioned at Responsible Business Alliance. Well, great. And I'm going to go back to software in a second. But before that, I want to, where a lot of people start, (laughs) I want to get to, which is data and particularly carbon accounting software that's really exploding. What are some things if the company is going to engage with a third party to help in terms of measuring, monitoring, and then making the linkages between carbon and emissions and financials, some advice that you have for them in terms of how they gather the data and then how they work with software providers in terms of actually (laughs) figuring out how to use the data in a productive way? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that Carbon is a data problem, and there's no one chasing after your plane with a carbon monitor to figure out how much it emitted. It's a calculation based on 
what class of service you had, how far you flew, et cetera. And that's the same for almost every corporate transaction that you can think of. So carbon is a data problem, number one. Number two, there are very specific accountancy rules for how to apply emission factors to each category of transaction within your company. I used the travel example before, but the same can be said for almost any corporate transaction. So you have to understand that these accountancy rules are quite mature. They've been around for over 20 years, the greenhouse gas protocol. And what's happening within the software space right now is several companies are encoding all of those accountancy rules and incorporating emission factors on top so that you as a company can simply download your corporate transactions and outcomes the carbon estimates. And that all sounds real easy. It's actually quite complex and quite difficult. And one of the biggest difficulties to answer your question is integration. So many, what they call ERP, enterprise source planning systems within companies are different from one another. You've heard of the big ones, SAP, Oracle, but you know there are different pieces, like the piece that manages corporate travel is different than the piece that manages supply chain. And getting all of those things integrated so that the data actually flows, it's quality assured and auditable, and then produces estimates that you can rely upon is really hard. And it takes some time to get all of that up and running. But once it's up and running, you have not only a real-time way of looking at your footprint, but then you can start to future cast. What are the scenarios? What happens if we did this or did that? Then you can start to really have a handle on your path to decarbonization. Understand. And the de- it's, you know, taking it both and a better ability to assess the climate risk, right, associated with your operation. So it's really both. We have a question from Jessica, really, just to pause for a second. We mentioned this at the beginning. What is material to operations related to ESG and climate is different company by company, industry by industry, because obviously a software company is going to have a very different emissions footprint from a large oil and gas company, from a manufacturing company. Some specific advice for software companies in terms of how they should be thinking about the data problem, but also thinking about what they're measuring and how they're measuring. And then we'll turn to the hot topic of the moment, scope three. We'll do a little bit of a deep dive. Well, there's an opportunity and a risk for the software industry. Obviously, we covered the opportunity before, which was to automate the entire value chain of greenhouse gas, accounting, disclosure, risk assessment, all of that. And there are many companies working on that, as we said before. On the risk side, it's almost like what we talked about before with law firms and financial service firms. They don't have much of a footprint themselves, but their facilitated emissions or their supply chain emissions can be significant. In the case of software, it typically happens in data centers, and you're looking at several different companies that are providing relatively great information and fantastic carbon mitigation schemes. AWS, for example, is a great provider that is leading in that, and there's a number of others that are also focused on reducing the greenhouse gas footprint of server farms. So I think those are the things that I would look at for the software industry. And let's just pause a second. You've mentioned it a couple of times, scope three emissions. One of the biggest criticism of the new SEC rules is they cover scope three emissions. And it's going to be, you know, people argue very, very expensive. In terms of measuring your emissions, if you're a software company, you could say, we don't have much emissions. It's not material. We don't need to. 
But if and when the SEC rules go into effect, odds are high if you're a software company, you're in somebody else's supply chain that is going to have to report, number one. And number two, if your marketing department has gotten out in front and made any net zero or carbon neutral, you know, promises, pledges, you are going to have to measure. So I, I don't think there's really going to be any company, public or private, that's not going to have to measure their emissions. So help unpack what it really means to measure and monitor your scope three emissions, and then any practical advice about how companies can do that in a cost-effective way. Look, this is where the world of ESG and finance diverge. And we had talked about this great convergence, ESG specifically the climate, going into the world of mainstream commerce and finance. Great. But commerce and finance is based on accounting procedures set by the International Financial Reporting Standards, IFRS, which is now working on sustainability standards. And in this country, we have GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles set by the FASB. And so you've got the mismatch there because nowhere in finance do you have to account for all of these upstream and downstream activities and then somehow be responsible for them. And that's the difficulty that we are currently facing. So some of the kind of academic accountant folks that I know are up in arms about this and see that there is a mismatch in the basic accountancy standards, and that needs to be fixed. It remains to be seen how it will be fixed. But what is very clear is that all of the mandates around the world are inclusive of some scope three emissions. Why is that? It's because the majority of the greenhouse gas footprint for most companies is in scope three as we just discussed for law firms and financial firms. So I think it's here to stay. To get to your question though, how do you cope with it? I'll use an example. When I was at AMD, we started to look at this area really in depth. And we looked at the entire footprint and we found something we weren't really anticipating, which was the majority of the greenhouse gas footprint was not upstream in the supply chain, it was downstream in the product because we were making electricity consuming products. And all of a sudden it just changed our entire strategy. We said, well, we should focus there. What can we do to design energy efficient semiconductors that are used in computers and other electronic devices? And it became an entire goal to make the semiconductor 25 times more energy efficient by the year 2020, a goal that they in fact achieved, which is incredible, right? But because it, it had been based on this analysis of scope three, became this goal. It actually became a win-win. That means it had business benefits as well as sustainability benefits for the company. So that's just one example, but the common thread is look across the entire footprint, do an assessment, use a consultant, get some raw data, understand where the biggest impacts are and start drilling in there. I think scope three is here to stay because of its massive implications. I think that the accountancy procedures, the disclosure standards are all going to evolve, but the main message is don't avoid it. Get involved, take a look at it, understand where the biggest risks are and focus there. As you said earlier, and following our friend Joel Makeauer, if you've made some pledges, figure out how you're going to live up to them. And I just had one additional question on this, which I get all the time, and I have trouble for our firm, which is, okay... You know, we've made this pledge, you know, we're, we're going to start trying to track our scope three and everybody with whom we contract with, but there's just no way we're going to get there without buying credits. 
is a credit that's verified by ACR or by Vera? How do I tell that these are good credits, particularly if I'm a company, so I don't end up either on the John Oliver show or on the front page of the New York Times that, in fact, all these credits have been generated and they haven't actually done anything to reduce emissions. Any practical (laughs) advice there? You're touching on an incredibly important issue. And I think that the area of carbon offsets, even though John Oliver made fun of it, I think was he maybe overdid it a little bit because offsets are essential to prevent stranded assets as we go through an energy transition. But to your point, quality is the problem. And that's where John Oliver was really poking fun because some of these offsets get ridiculous. And the only way to avoid getting stained with these poor quality offsets is to have people within your company that actually work for your company that are really focused on this. It's almost like a carbon trading desk because not all carbon offsets are created equal. You have to really kick the tires. You have to understand if it's been certified by one of these certification agencies, what does that really mean? And how do we assure ourselves and in front of our entire customer base, the reputation of the company at stake, that these are good offsets and be public about it, be proactive about it, tell your own story instead of having it told for you. But it is going to require having people on staff who know what they're doing. And talk to me just also about the risk of double counting. I've heard that with respect to scope three and in this space as well. What are your thoughts about it? How do you think you avoid that as a company? I think it's unavoidable. You start to look at these issues and say, well, okay, it's double counting. Got it. Are we going to focus on that issue? Or are we going to focus on what we can do as a company to decarbonize? I think it's much more fruitful to focus on the latter, obviously. It's an analogous argument I've heard is, People are concerned that the SEC may get caught in litigation, therefore I don't have to worry about it. Okay, you could have that discussion too, but look at the broader trends here. Greenhouse gas disclosure is coming. It's going to be part of your financial statements. There's a lot to do to get ready for that. So get ready for it. It's not that hard. I mean, the argument I make is, I think the analogy to carbon disclosure is the conflict minerals where, you know, so everybody sues, everybody challenges. But in fact, so one part of it is taken out. The bus has already left the station. We're headed. (laughs) We're headed, as you said, we're headed. And most folks have jurisdictional reach ex-US. And so even if US disclosure requirements are held up for some period of time, if they're doing business with anybody, Europe, Asia, they're going to have to start measuring and reporting. Which leads me, and again, we may have time for one more audience question if it comes in, but I wanted to ask you, about partnerships. We've been, you know, for years, actually since the EICC working with BSR, setting up partnerships. But in this area, when you're handling scope three and have the disclosure requirements and you're a software or other company, working in collaboration with others can be a real positive to figuring out how you meet your internal goals or the regulatory requirements. Can you just sort of share your views on partnerships, collaborations in the industry, noting that people have to be just wary of antitrust? We'll cover that in a later one, but some of your thoughts about how people could do that effectively. It's such a great question because no company does this alone, especially when it comes to scope three. Decarbonization is a team sport. And we mentioned double counting before, and that essentially means that we're using the same suppliers across the supply chain, let's say. This is how the Electronic Industry Citizenship Coalition, now Responsible Business Alliance, got started. I'll never forget it. The guy who's currently CSO at Intel used to work for me, and he came into a meeting room with a chart, 
And he showed this is the number of audits that we're seeing at our factories and our supply chain. It was just a log phase growth. And we said, why is that? And so everybody's using the same suppliers and everybody's auditing them with their own special sauce. So we need to collaborate. And that was the birth of the Responsible Business Alliance. This is exactly the same for Scope 3. And it's not just RBA, in case you think we're doing an ad for them, but folks like Ecovatus have completely made their business off of the buyer-supplier relationships and specifically passing this kind of information on ESG, specifically climate, uh, between buyer and supplier up and down the supply chain. And you mentioned conflict minerals because conflict minerals actually ties the entire supply chain together. So we know how to do this. We know how to relate buyer-supplier. We know how to pass this information in a way that protects privacy rights and gives companies that are involved in these pre-competitive collaborations a huge advantage in terms of getting ahead of this, actually saving themselves cost because they're working together. But that word pre-competitive, not to upstage your next webinar, is essential. It's got to be done within the right envelope or else it can get you into trouble. It leads to, you know, definition of collusion, which is an antitrust problem. So we will come to that. Thanks so much, Tim. I think I'm going to leave it there. Really enjoyed speaking with you. And I'd like to turn it back over to my friend, Aaron Kramer, to talk about what's coming next. Thanks, Suze. Thanks, Tim. Really interesting conversation. It's amazing how much ground was covered in a bit less than an hour. And this is one of the things, you know, just back from Climate Week before last, where I saw Tim. I mean, this is a topic that is on everyone's minds right now. So thanks, Tim, for illuminating it. Suze, thanks for guiding a really interesting discussion. And I just wanted to give a brief preview of our next episode, number three. The next one is November the 1st, four weeks from tomorrow, same time, 8.30 a.m. Pacific time, 11.30 East Coast time, 5.30 Central European time for people who are joining us from there. And we will be delighted to welcome Rose Kirk, who is the Chief Corporate Responsibility Officer at Verizon, who will give you her perspective. And this will be the first corporate executive we're going to have in one of these chats. So again, thanks, Susan, Tim. Thank you all for joining us today. And we look forward to being with you again next time. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.